Amanda Cook, Stephanie, Fris- uh, Stephanie Gratzinger, uh, um, Janet Scales, Catherine Kuhlman. Anybody know who Catherine Kuhlman is? Crazy anointed woman of God, like carried the miraculous on her in a way that, uh, I mean, she was a little cuckoo too, but that's that's okay. I'm okay with that. Heidi Baker. Oh my gosh. Anyway. Shall we pray? You guys still seem like totally subdued. What's going on? Did somebody die? I hope that's not true because then that won't. It's not <laughs> no, you guys just. just everybody's like, bleh. Okay. Oh, I know. It's like those who failed are the most depressed. Well, before we pray, I'm interested in some reflections on last week. Last week, we talked about... Have you been thinking about it? What was one nugget that you carried that you still have in your head from last week? Just go. God loves us because he enjoys us. God loves me because he enjoys us. That is huge. That's still. I was talking to the Lord about it this morning, and um, about that specifically. And I realize that because I honestly believe that that's like that is what has that is the primary idea that has set my soul at rest. That I honestly believe in the deeper part of me that I'm enjoyed by God, like that I'm loved by Him. Like those two things are synonymous to one another, but we don't make them synonymous with one another in our heads. We easily separate God loves me and God enjoys me as if those were two separate things. They're not two separate things. Um, the Lord told me a long time ago that it is not enough to say I love someone and not enjoy them. That if I'm not enjoying them, they will never feel that I love them. And so then it became my mission to try and enjoy people in my life that I would have said I love you, but I don't like you. And there were quite a few of those. I mean, let's all be honest. There's people that's like, look, I, I care about you. I don't want bad things to happen to you. You're important to me, but you hurt me. And you're mean to me. And it's difficult for me to enjoy you because you bring pain into my, into my world. Whether you mean to or not, like sometimes it is that they make you feel insecure about yourself. Sometimes it is that they are just unpleasant You know, there's some people that you enjoy being around, and there's some people that you just, when they walk in the room, you kind of roll your eyes. I mean, that's just real, right? Don't don't look at anybody in the room. Especially living in community, it gets really bad. Really bad. We used to, when I was in Master's Commission, and I I did a year and a half of Master's Commission. When I was in Master's Commission, we had these specific times where we were supposed to, we was called care group, and we were supposed to be like, 
talking to one another, relating, praying for one another. Like that was the focus of that time. But it, we ended up calling it tear group because we would just like, we would get together and then that's when all the crap came out. That's when all of the like complaints got put out there on the table, you know, like, like, you know, and we would use these veiled passive aggressive like statements. Sometimes I feel like if other people were a little more careful about everyone else's time, that it would be easier to get along with them. <laughs> we wouldn't just say, hey. You are always late and I'm sick of it. That never happened. It was just like, you know, we would say it in the most passive-aggressive way. And so we ended up, there was this one day when our, my youth pastor was our director, okay? And, and he usually didn't come to care group, but he came to care group one time and he was just like, what is going on in this room? Because everybody was just mad at each other. It was just this palpable tension in the room. And, and, and he goes, that's it right now. Right now, today, before the end of this day, if you are mad at someone else in this room, you have to face them face to face like an adult and you have to talk it out today. That was a hard day. So the rest of the day, like he canceled everything else we were going to do that day and we had to stay in what was our equivalent of this. The whole time until everyone had like gotten all of their stuff out on the table with each other. And so there was a whole lot of, okay, I need to talk to you. And so they would like go off and we had this like room with a table and chairs and like, and so we just gave people turns in there and they were like, one person would go in there and they would just come back to the door after they were done and be like, okay, I need so-and-so to come in. And like, that's just kind of, I'm serious. That's how it went. It was like a doctor's office. It was like, next. Okay. I mean, that's just, that's how it went. But I, it cleared the air in an incredible way. By the end of that day, we had honestly worked out every single, there was only one. Only one fight that did not get fixed during that time in the office. And uh, all of us being the, the loving, kind, wonderful people we were, we told on them, on the two that really needed to talk to each other and had not yet talked to each other. One of them was my wife, FYI. But, uh, but not me. It was another young lady in the, in the thing. And, um, um, and like he grabbed them both and put them in the stairwell next to the stage and like had people stand on each door and wait until they were done. And it got pretty ugly. I got to say, like there was like yelling and there was like, way it was crazy. But anyway, <laughs> after that, after all of that, it was like, there was this freedom. There's this lightness to the air. It was like, wow, that was that's great. But man, that was a heck of a day. I'll tell you what. We had several of those days. We had a day that we called Black Thursday. Um, no. This was a day where it came out to the leadership that immediately, like the weekend prior to Master's Commission beginning, about half of our students had gone out into the woods and had like a party with lots of alcohol and whatever that lasted all night. 
Yes. Like half of the students have done that. It was like their last fling before master's commission, which was right. Okay. So they found out about it. Our leadership found out about it. And they took it to my dad, who was the senior pastor of the church then. Uh, still is, obviously. but um, And I will never forget, because we had prayer time just like you guys have right now. And our director came to the door of the room we were in for prayer time and said, everybody needs to get to the meeting room right now. And I remember one of the guys going, do we need anything? And he's, the director just kind of goes, just you. <laughs> We all go in there and we sit down and there was already people crying because they already knew what was happening. They had already kind of been let in on what was about to happen. And it all came out and the, the discipline that was going to be put in place for those people that had been involved, they were not going to get kicked out. A lot of them thought they were. They were not going to get kicked out, but they were they were going to be on probation for the next like three months or something. They were going to be pulled out of all visible places of ministry for those three months. One of them was the worship leader for the youth group at the time. Oh. We had, we had like 600 kids in the youth group at that time. So this was not a small, this was a huge thing. Yes. <laughs> okay. So, and, and she was going to be, and it was going to be told to the whole youth group exactly what they had done and why they were being punished. Uh, oh, yes. Talk about a bus. Yes, it was huge. Now, I was not one of those people. I had not done that. And so, and I had no idea it had happened. So I'm just sitting in the room kind of going, <laughs> you know, like shrinking into my chair. And, but I will never forget the moment because we're all sitting in the room and our director's in there. And we're like, what are we waiting on? He goes, you'll see. And then the door opens and my dad was standing in the door. And that's when the rest of the people who had been doing it started crying. Because <laughs> they were all like, oh, Pastor Ron is here, we're all going to die. You know, it was just like, <laughs> because they knew what was about to happen. Of course, the rest of us are all going, what the <laughs> well, Dad was looking at me because they they said we know we know who was involved, but if there's anything else that needs to be like confessed that happened, like prior to Master's Commission, this is the time. And I had had a really serious girlfriend before Master's. And so I think dad was wondering if like I had crossed lines with her, which I had not. And so he was kind of staring at me like, if there's something in there, you better say something, you know? And I was just like, I'm as pure as the white driven snow. No, I didn't say that, but I just sat there. I was like, nope, I'm good. <laughs> I've got nothing to confess. I honestly didn't have anything to confess. And, uh, but so that meant that, I had to take over the worship team and I had led worship like three times in my life before this. And now I was going to be leading worship every week. Right now. I was on the worship team like as a vocalist, but I had only led like twice. And 
So yeah, just, I mean, it was crazy because all of the ministry that everyone was supposed to be doing other than like setting up chairs, that kind of thing was now put on the like five of us that had not gotten in trouble. It was intense. But anyway, yeah, that was Black Thursday. It was pretty crazy. And, but it was really, really good for those people that, I mean, honestly, that disciplinary time was really powerful for those people. And uh, we started off with 13 students and only seven graduated. Yeah. And, but all of the people that had gone through that disciplinary time graduated because God cracked down on them and grabbed them. So, yeah, it was interesting. But anyway, I don't know why I told that story. Why did I tell that story? I don't know. Anyway. Oh, we were talking about care group and tear group. And <laughs> so if there's something going on, guys, letting it fester is the wrong thing to do. One of the things that I talked about in the sermon on Sunday was in being a peacemaker – one of the you have to do two things you have to avoid careless confrontation okay and when i say careless confrontation i'm talking about like saying something inflammatory on facebook saying correcting somebody that is wrong just because you're right and they're wrong it's it is confronting someone without care or love for them as a person because being a peacemaker means stepping in between two people that are fighting and trying to calm the waters. But it also means that when aggression is coming towards you, you disarm it. You may need to be a peacemaker when someone is making war against you. Looking sharp, man. Can I go to a funeral with Frank? So somebody did die. Really? <laughs> So it means it, it it means avoiding careless confrontation, but being a peacemaker also means embracing loving confrontation. Because you can't be a peacemaker by ignoring the problem. Does that make sense? You cannot be a peacemaker by just saying, I'm just gonna bury my head and let this fly over. That's not being a peacemaker. A peacemaker steps into the middle. And brings love and grace and humility and, and honesty into the middle of a situation. That's what a peacemaker does. So if there's stuff in the room, you need to have the conversation. And you need to do it in love. You need to do it owning the fact that you are half of the equation. need to do it out of repentance and out of care for the person that you're going to talk to. But you need to have the conversation. Because ignoring the problem is not going to do anything but make it worse. I don't know who that's for, but I feel like that's a prophetic word for the room. Okay? Now is not the time, however. Now we're going to talk about Romans. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the beauty and the glory of your love. Lord, I thank you for the truth that you enjoy us. Oh, wow. 
You've set a name on us. Isaiah 62 says that you will give us a new name which the mouth of the Lord will bestow. And that name is my delight is in her. Lord, I pray that in this room we would be able to say that we are the ones that God delights in. That I would be able to say that in my darkest moment, in my, in my most guilty moment, in my most shame-filled moment, in the, in, in the moment where I look at myself and don't even recognize myself, that I would, that I would be able to say out of faith and out of, out of deep revelation to my soul that even in that moment, I would be able to say, no, God delights in me. So I have hope. Lord, I pray that as we walk through the attributes of your nature, and as we walk through the opposite of your nature, in these next few verses, Lord, I pray that revelation would visit this room. I pray with the Apostle Paul that the spirit of wisdom and revelation would come would fill this room and would give us experiential knowledge of Christ Jesus. Hands-on, tactile, tangible, tasteable knowledge of the Lord Jesus. That will change us. Pray this in Jesus' name, through the intercession of Jesus, through the work of Christ on the cross. Amen. <clears throat> so we ended our time last week talking about the, the reality that God has made himself evident to us by the very fact of our own creation, that he has displayed his glory to us, and that every human being on the face of the earth has an innate knowledge, and they're just locked up in their own DNA, of who God is and what he wants. And these are the verses that, that say that. Okay, That's verse 19 and verse 20, and I'm going to read them. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Nobody gets to say, I didn't know that I was a sinner, because everyone knows. No one gets to say, I didn't know there was a God. Because everyone knows. The most staunch atheist on the planet has something inside of them that says there is a divine authority. And they're actively rejecting that idea. 
They have deeply deluded themselves. You have to work hard to stop believing in God. There's a lot of people that would say it's the other way. No, I have to work hard to believe in God. That's not true. You might have to work hard to believe that God is loving. You might have to work hard to believe that God is good. You might have to work hard to believe that God cares about you. Because those are things that the enemy has been telling you since the moment you were born are not true. But it is in our DNA to believe that there is a God. And not only that, it's in our DNA to believe that he's good and to believe that he's loving and to believe that he cares about us. But the way the enemy takes down our understanding of God... The Bible talks about vain imaginations which stand against uh, the knowledge of God in the world. Okay, That's what the enemy is constantly doing. He's constantly feeding us little lies that grow up to become big lies upon which our whole universe is built. And the process, after Jesus has forgiven you of all of your sins, every sin you've ever committed, every sin you ever will commit, after Jesus has finished that, he has brought you back into communication and connection with God. Now his process looks like this. Revealing the lies that the enemy has planted in your heart and removing them. And the problem is that removing them is not just like taking a brick out of a wall, which would be hard enough because you take enough bricks out of a wall. I mean, have you ever played Jenga? Okay, that would be hard enough. It's worse than that because the Bible reckons ideas like plants, like weeds, like like wheat. And the way ideas work is they drop into the soil of our hearts and they begin to grow. And as they grow, they grow down deeper into our heart. They connect with other parts of who we are. The root system goes down deep inside of us and it grows up. And as it grows up, then fruit begins to be visible. And here's the, what we need to understand, is that the lie that we've believed is the beginning of sin. The sinful act that we commit is the fruit. And we spend most of our Christian lives at war against the fruit, when what real, the real problem is the root of that thing. If you just go along and just snip off weeds at the ground level, they're just going to grow right back like within days because that's how they were built. Okay, that's how they work. As long as the root system stays intact, they will continue to grow. And we have to find the roots of the lies and every place, every way that they've grown into every system of thought in our human minds, in our human, uh, in our ways of thinking, in our knee-jerk reactions, in our, in, in the ways that we think about the world and ourselves and other people and God. And we have to find all of that. And we have to let the word of God burn those roots out of everywhere that they extend into us. That's why it always takes a process. And that's why we're constantly, that's why we have to sit in truths for a long time before they really begin to bear fruit in us. Because truths work the same way. Jesus talked about it in the parable of the sower. He said, we cast the seed out, okay? It lands in the soil. And sometimes, you know, he named several different kinds of soil. But the soil is pictures 
of different kinds of human hearts, the different conditions of the human heart. And when the soil, when it lands among the weeds, what happens? It begins to grow, but then the weeds choke it out. So we'll have a little bit like some early success, like, ooh, this idea is actually, it's actually beginning to work on the inside of me. But then it, all of a sudden it just dies away and we're like, well, what happened? I guess it's not, I guess it didn't work. No, the problem is the weeds that are all around it. The problem is all the lies that you believe. And there are more lies in there than there is truth. So the process is to receive truth, yes. But we also have to uproot lies at the same time. And because ideas are connected to one another and because, and because uh, ideas and feelings and whatever are all mingled up together, the soul is one thing. You know, it's the mind, the will, and the emotions are all, it's so, there's, you can't separate your mind from your emotions, not really. We think we can. Well, my head says this, but my heart says this. Yeah, I get that, but at the same time, it's not really true. Do you know how many people are completely addicted to substances and they hate that substance with everything inside of them, but they can't get away from it? They don't want to do this anymore, but it's controlling them like a little puppet. And you can speak truth to them. That thing is killing you. And they're going, I know, but I can't stop. The problem is always, the problem is always that they didn't, it's not being taken care of at the root. That the acting out of that addiction, whether it's pornography or gambling or some kind of substance, the acting out of that addiction is the fruit of the problem. Until the root is dealt with, the problem is going to remain. And the only one, the only way to really deal with the root of the problem is by the help of of the Holy Spirit who knows your heart better than you do and he will reveal those things to you. And he will walk you through a process, a torturous, painful process of uprooting this out of your soul so that this has no more control over you. And when that is done, the fruit will disappear of its own accord. But we always fight the problem at the behavioral level, don't we? Constantly. Stop that. Stop. 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 Right? We smack our own wrists. We spend time, after we've sinned, we spend time feeling bad about it. How many of you do that? Every single one of you. After you've sinned, we spend time feeling bad about it until we, okay, I, I felt bad about this long enough, I can stop feeling bad about it now. As if you punishing yourself was actually helping anything. It's not, by the way. What you are doing when you do that is you are using the law to try and defeat sin. And it will never work. Because it doesn't deal with the root. But grace deals with the root. We'll get there some other time. I don't have time to go there today. There's plenty about that in Romans. We'll get there. That which is known about God is evident to them because God has made it evident to them. We need to understand who he is. 
God is a God who is constantly, all the time, seeking to reveal his glory to mankind. All the time. I will never forget the day that this was made clear to me. I didn't know this to be true. I was at a conference at the House of Prayer in Kansas City. And we went into the worship time, and it was this... It was this Christian artist. Anybody ever remember the Christian artist Waterdeep? Anybody ever heard of them? Anyway, they were they were popular for about a year. But anyway. <coughs> and they were supposed to be leading worship for this. And they started singing, and they weren't singing worship songs. They were doing just like Christian contemporary songs, like it was a concert. And I'm going, this is a prayer and worship conference? There was 30,000 people there. So okay. it was the one thing conference in Kansas City. Anybody ever heard of it? Okay. If you get to go, you should go. Like, you should go. It's powerful. But anyway, so I was there, and I had taken my whole youth worship team with me. I had like 13 or 15 students with me. And we're in there, and this is supposed to be worship time. It's the first night of the conference. It's supposed to be worship time. And they're singing about how they got in a fight with their wife. Okay? And I was just like, furious. I was really mad. So I just said, no. So I, I, I stood up and walked out. Apparently, it got pretty ugly in there. Like, apparently people started like, do worship songs at some point. That, but that was after I left. Okay, so I don't know. But I, <laughs> like, I left and I went down. And at the House of Prayer, any conference they do, they have the main room where the speaking and the and kind of the conference is going on, but they also always have the prayer room will continue to function because it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week prayer. It's been, been going on there for like 15 years, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the last 15 years, and it will continue to go on as long as until Jesus returns. That's the plan anyway. Okay, so I knew the prayer room was still going on, and I was like, I'm going to go to the prayer room. So I went downstairs, and I went to the prayer room, and I walk in. The minute I walk in the room, I was like, oh, yes, this is, this is so much better. Because it was like a hot tub of the presence of Jesus. Like, like, like the presence of Jesus was just bubbling all around me. I was like, ooh, this is where I belong. I may never leave this room the rest of the week, right? So I went over, and I sat down, and I'm kind of just looking around. And the way that they do things at the International House of Prayer is they, they pray Scripture, and then they sing out of the prayer out of the scripture. So they make up brand new like choruses and songs or whatever out of the scripture that they just read. So, and in this, they, what they were praying was the Psalm that says, search me and know me, see if there be any wicked way in me. That's what they were singing. They were singing that Psalm and they were just kind of like, you know, riffing on it. And I had never heard them do this before. It's called harp and bowl. Um, I had never heard them do it. I had no idea what was going on, but I was really cool. And I was like, this, I can dig this. Like, this is cool. Okay. So they were just, they were going on it. And I was just like, yeah, I was really loving it. And so I began to sing to the Lord, my own song out of that Psalm. Just, you know, Oh God, seek me, know me, see if there be any wicked way. Oh God. And I was singing that and the Holy Spirit encountered me and just boom. And he said, no. I was like, what? You know, he said, I know you. I want you to know me. And then I see this picture of Jesus, like opening his robe like this. Okay. Showing me his heart. 
And when that happened, I fell out of my chair into the, the like aisle between the chairs and just like was completely overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit. And when I kind of came to, you know, have you ever had that moment where like, like God just blows all your circuits and you don't exactly know what's going on? Right. And then, and then like things kind of simmer down a little bit and you realize I've just made a complete fool of myself. Anybody ever been in that moment? If you haven't, I pray that God does that for you. Like right now, it's the best thing ever. It's just like, it's awesome. You know, anyway, so that I had one of those moments. I haven't had a lot of those. Yes, I have had a lot of those. I love those moments, but I had one of those moments. I was just like, ah! and I'm laying down and I was stretched out between the rows of chairs. And then I realized that I was saying something very loudly. Now they had told me, they had told me before I, before I got there, because they knew that I was a person who encountered the Holy Spirit in rather physical ways. Sometimes they had told me that if I started manifesting the Holy Spirit in like obnoxious ways, like ways that would make other people like uh, distract them from encountering the Lord, that I would be like removed from the room. Like I would be taken away to the manifestation room where like people were let. I'm serious. Like they had another room. Okay. God's moving on you in awesome ways. We're okay with that, but we're going to take you someplace where you're not going to be a distraction. Like they would, and I knew that. And so my first thought as I kind of came to was, Oh my gosh, I'm going to get moved out of this room. But I, then my second thought was, what the heck am I saying? And I realized what I was saying was, you are the naked God. <laughs> yeah. I didn't get removed, thankfully. That, that didn't happen. I was really worried that it was going to. Well, the room was rather loud already, and so I don't think anybody heard me. Plus, I was down in between the rows of chairs, and so... I, you know, was kind of yelling into the bottom of a chair. Oh. So I, you know, it's, I, it wasn't like I was in front of the room and <laughs> nobody else was up there. And I was like, you are the naked God. No, it wasn't like that. But I was deeply embarrassed. But at the same time, I had been given this gift, this understanding, this deep revelation of the fact that Jesus' desire is that I know him. And I'd never got that before. I'd never understood it. I ne just never connected with this reality that God wanted, that not just wanted, God deeply desired. His heart was burning for me to know him. That all of his omnipotent power was at work in the universe to show me God. I'd never thought about that in my life. It wrecked me. The rest of the week, I sat in that understanding. God wants me to know him. Really, the rest of my life since then, this has been one of the, one of the themes of my life, is to tell people the truth. God desires, God wants you to know him. But the, that... Those words feel like watered down Kool-Aid. Okay, that's what they feel like to me. Because if you had if you had seen what I saw, if you had 
felt what I felt in that moment, you would know that God's incredibly passionate, fiery, burning, eternal, unstoppable, unchangeable desire is that you know him. And there's a word that this word know, the English word K-N-O-W is crap. It's terrible because it, because we use it for the same, we use it for facts like, I know that that wall is gray. Okay. I know that one plus one equals two. Okay. But we also use it for like personal relationships. Like I know my wife. We have been married for almost 20 years. Okay. I know everything about her. Do you see how those two uses of the word are completely disparate from one another? Oh, one plus one equals two. And I know this person. You know, you know, do you see what I mean? Now, the Greeks had different words for those two ideas. A lot of other languages do, too. Like, German has different words for those. Okay? But English just sucks. We're just going to throw it all into one. Isn't known also, like... Time yes. Yeah. Adam knew his wife and she bore him a child. Yeah. Okay. That's, but that, okay. <laughs> Ephesians chapter three, verse, verse, uh, like 14 through 20 is one of my all time favorite prayers in scripture. And it says that, you know, for this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family on heaven and earth has received its name that you might be strengthened through his spirit in your inner man, that you might know the love of Christ. That word in the Greek means more like Adam knew his wife than it does one plus one equals two. Why is it <laughs> What? Sorry, in many masters, that was our like our verse that we had to memorize. What, Adam knew his wife or Ephesians 3? <laughs> Ephesians. Adam knew his wife. That's what Barry was telling us. Barry was like, okay, guys, okay, this, this is where babies come from. <laughs> no, like I've heard that times in, in master's commissions. That verse, well, that verse is foundational for me. Because that is a verse I pray over you. That is a verse I pray over myself. That's a verse I pray over. Last week, I was at this church in Kendallville. And like the response time of the sermon was me praying this verse over that church. When I was in Mexico, what, like the pinnacle of, of our time there was me praying that prayer over the young people in the YWAM base in Mexico City. Because if you will, if you can know, like Adam knew his wife, intimate, experiential knowledge of God's love for you, it will change you completely. I think it is the most important request I can make on your behalf that you would know the love of God. And not just know it. I know Jesus loves me. I sang it when I was a kid. Know it like you've had intimate, up close, full body experience of the love of God. As intimate 
as experiential as a sexual encounter. Which fills all the senses. We're talking about every, every way that you could experience something. That you would experience the love of God. That's the no that Paul is talking about. The word in Greek is epinosis. It means up close, face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball, intimate, experiential knowledge of the love of God. That's the word no. And that's almost every time you see the word K-N-O-W in the New Testament, especially in the writings of Paul, that's the word that he's using. And that's my prayer for you. Not that you would just have some kind of mental assent to the fact that God loves you, but that you would have fully and regularly and deeply experienced the love of God for you. That you have personal encounter knowledge of the love of God for you. That it goes beyond a mental assent and it goes into an emotional reality. One of my favorite quotes, and I think I've quoted it to you already, was St. John of the Cross. I have had experiences with God so so delicious, he says. I love food words. So delicious that it makes me blush just to think of them. I want that for you. I want that for me. Definitely that experience in the house of prayer, that makes me blush a little bit. Because it's like I was deeply embarrassed by how incredibly intimate Jesus was and my response. But it was an automatic, knee-jerk, uncontrollable response out of my heart. When Jesus began to show me who he was, my heart immediately responded with, yes! Like it was just, there was nothing I could do about it. Everything inside my being went, "Eh, more, more. Like it was just this. That's what it was. And I am constantly looking to get to one of those places. And I have multiple moments like that in my life where Jesus has so just like, just pushed beyond all the veils and just grabbed me by the heart and said, I love you, you know, and just like, (laughs) first time that that ever happened to me, I honestly thought I was going to die. I was scared crapless. I'm serious. I thought I was going to die. I was like, ah! You're not allowed to come that close. Jesus. <laughs> it was <laughs> real. It's scary. It was frightening. And, and my first reaction was, no! And then later on I went, I am so stupid. Please forget that I said no. Please come back. Anyway. God desires that we know him. After after that encounter, well, yeah, we're moving forward because I want to begin to invite you into some of the things he wants you to know about him. Okay. He wants you to know him. You. 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 
He's passionate. He's fiery about your heart. It's really easy for us to say, well, I can understand why he'd be passionate about that person. And to just bypass your own self and say, why would he? He wouldn't want it that way. No, he wants that about, he wants you to know him. It's his overriding desire. After any encounter that I have with God, where something like that is revealed, my immediate reaction is to find it in Scripture. If I come away from an encounter with God with some idea about God that I did not have before, I go looking for it instantly. That should always be your reaction. Go looking for it in Scripture. Because I don't care how powerful the encounter was. If the idea you have about God cannot be found in Scripture, that wasn't an encounter with God. Now, I will say this to you. I have never had an encounter with God that I, could not, that I did not later find in Scripture. In fact, usually, as soon as I open my Bible, it's like yelling at me from Scripture. Like, ah! I didn't even realize that was there. This verse right here, was one of the ver- was the really the first verse that I found that helped me understand the truth about how about God's unstoppable desire to make himself known. In the very DNA with which he created us, he has already set us to know him. There are a bunch more verses about this. Go find them. I plan on writing a book about this. I'm going to entitle it The Naked God. Mostly because I think people would pick up the book just to see the title. Like, what? But there is so much. And all I'm going to do in the book is just unfold all of the places in scripture where the Bible makes it clear that God desires to be known. Personally, intimately, completely known. Verse 20, it says that his invisible attributes, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen by what is made. So Paul lays out the three things that God wants us to know. Three of the things, there's more than that, but three of the things that God wants us to know about him. Okay? His invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature. Now, I'm going to go through a list, and we're going to talk about each of these. This list is long. We may not get, we may not get beyond, any, beyond this list today. I'm okay with that. This is a list that I'm stealing from A.W. Tozer, from his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. You need to read that book. It's not long. It's a short book. It will take you a long time to read it because you will read a page and then weep for an hour and then read a page and then weep for an hour and then I'm not kidding. 
this book is massively important. And I bought it that week. I did not even know that's what it was about. I just heard one of the preachers say, you need to buy Knowledge of the Holy. And I went and found it, and it was like 10 bucks. So I said, I like, I like A.W. Tozer. So I picked it up, and it radically messed with my world in great ways. So this list comes directly out of that book. In the book, each of these is a chapter. But we're going we're gonna to just kind of get the essence of what each one is and, and move on. Okay? So here we go. You ready? Okay, the first one. These are the invisible attributes of God. These are things that are true, that are real about God. The first one is the self-existence of God. Okay? The self-existence of God. God is unique because he has he was not created. God was not created. God exists of his own accord. He exists because he exists. And he is the only being in the universe or outside the universe that can say that about themselves. That is why he told Moses that his name was I am. Okay? He told Moses that in the era of of people being named for their fathers, okay? Like uh that that was kind of your last name. Okay? You you you'd be Preston son of Matthew. Okay? That would be your name. Okay? Like my name would be Josh son of Ron. That's what people would call me. Okay? And there's a reason for that because my existence is due to my father's existence. If he never existed, I would never exist. It's like one of those time travel movie paradoxes, like, you know, like back to the future when his parents weren't going to get together. And so he started like disappearing. You know what I'm talking about? Okay. If my dad hadn't existed, I wouldn't exist because I'm not self-existent. I come from someone, but God doesn't come from anyone. God exists. He has always existed. He will always exist, which we're going to get to that in a little bit, but he is self-existent. He said, I am. My name, he said, is I am. I exist. He, it is all of these, all of these understandings of who God is, if you think about them long enough, will make your nose bleed. It really will. It will blow the brains out the back of your head if you think about it long enough. God does not come from anyone or anything. He is, he had no beginning. He just is. And not only that, he is forever. There isn't who he was and who he will be. There is who he is. And that's true in the past, the present, and the future. God is I am. Am is his name. You having fun, everyone? I love I love thinking about these things. The self-existence of God. 
God, he's not derived from anything else. Now, all of these must be applied to all of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Jesus, there was never a time when the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, was not the second person of the Trinity. And there was never a time, check this out, when he wasn't the Son. And there was never a time when God the Father wasn't the Father. And there was never a time when God the Spirit wasn't the Spirit. They are who they are, and they are one, even though they are three. The fact that God is Father has been true since before creation. He didn't have to have creations to be the Father. He has been Father since before, and the Son has been Son since before. That's who He always was. Are you guys having fun with this? I'm loving this. Okay, that's the self-existence of God. God exists of himself. Nothing adds to his existence. Nothing takes away from his existence. Nothing defines God except for God. God is the definition. His own definition. And anything we would use to describe God is like using a reflection to describe you. He is the original. So if we say God is beautiful, the only reason we understand what beauty is, is because God is beauty. And anything else we see that is beautiful is just a very faint, glimmering reflection of the untainted, raw beauty that is God. If we say that God is good, He's not good in comparison to anything else. He is good, period. That is what he is. We say God is kind. He is kind. There's not, it's not because, like, there's this whole Eastern mysticism idea, like, if there wasn't darkness, there wouldn't be light. Bull crap! Because God is not dark. God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. In the beginning... There was nothing. There wasn't darkness in the beginning. People say, it was all dark in the beginning. No, it wasn't. There wasn't darkness. Darkness did not exist. Nothing existed. When light began, darkness began. But God came before the light. (laughs) Yeah. All right, let's move on or we're never going to get beyond this. Just this first one. There's no shadows in heaven. No, I don't think there are. Sweet. <laughs> I want to make a shadow puppet. Not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> you can make a light puppet. I don't know. No, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know if there's no shadows. I don't know. <laughs> Once God created light, then there was darkness, but not until he created light. And the Bible actually says that God separated the light from the darkness. <sighs> So at one point they were, there, that light and darkness, you really, there was no, light. so God actually had to create, had to say, no, this is light and that's darkness. So the very idea of darkness was created by God himself. There's like a whole Eastern mysticism you're just talking about, there is no light without dark, but God created them. Yes. 
You can say there isn't, well, that's like they would say there is no good without evil, but that's not true. Because God was good before there was evil. And God was light before there was darkness. It wasn't until God said, let there be light outside of himself, that darkness began. And it wasn't, that wasn't until God actually separated light from darkness. Okay, question. So you said that like God created light, God, you know, created darkness. Yeah. So like before he, before the light, before the darkness, if he had light, then was that a different kind of light from the light he created? There was the light, which is God. And then there was the light in the world. God made manifest an inward reality that was his with, without. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, God said that there be light in verse three, but in verse two it said the earth was formless and void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. Right. Sure. So. Yeah. Explain. <laughs> there's a lot of theories about this because in one place the bible says that god created the universe out of nothing and then another place it said that he created he did not create the universe out of nothing so so it seems when 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 it says the earth was without form and void and the darkness was over the waters so apparently there were waters so that account of creation may not be the first time god created Boom. We don't know anything before that. We don't know anything before that. And we don't know anything after the end of our story. But who knows? There may be a million stories after ours. You know, uh, physicists believe that there are, are billions of universes, like infinite number of universes. If there are infinite number of universes, God has created them all. So this Genesis 1 may just be the story of ours. <laughs> yes. Oh gosh, I love this idea. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. Does that mean he's <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> I, it's entirely possible. Remember, you, me, and Tim <laughs> talked about this. Like, we get to, there's this there's this thing about okay at the end of the story of of salvation. Okay. So shall we ever be with the Lord. That's, that's the end. Our happily ever after is coming. Okay? But my question is, what's next? And the answer is, we don't know. Maybe God will do it all again. And we'll be, able to, and we'll be watching all of it. Maybe, maybe we'll be the angels of the next universe. I mean, who knows? I don't, I don't know. The Bible says that the sons of God, the angels, sang together at the creation of the, of the earth. So they existed before earth did. So what if we will be the ones singing at the next one? We don't know. What I'm saying is we don't know. It's all speculation after that. Okay? The point is we'll be with God, enjoying God forever, and God may... But what if... What if it isn't like, what if it's a whole different understanding? Okay, because, because if you start thinking about, if you start thinking about 
our universe is kind of one set of concepts and ideas, but what if God has a whole other completely creative new understanding that is not even anything like what our universe is, and we get to be a part of that, and he's going to do that. Okay? So, that's a, something completely beyond anything we understand. The point is, God comes before it all, God is the author of it all, and nothing invented God. God is self-existent. He is I am. And he's always been I am. Okay. Number two, the self-sufficiency of God. God needs nothing. Before he created anything, God was totally happy, needing nothing. Don't let... There, God didn't have any wants either. His want was to continue in the beautiful happiness and glory of his relationship with Son and Spirit. That was God Father's want. It was his only want. And he got his want. He always gets his want. There's never a time God does not get what he wants. <laughs> it's it's I think it's way I don't think it's like that even. I think it's just that what God wants is himself, and so he's got it. He's deeply content and happy. There's no, there's no, and so what he does, now understand, because creation, if that's true, then what happened? Why does creation exist? I'll tell you why. Because God loved, God the Father loved his Son and the Spirit so much that he created a gift for them, which expressed his own image and glory and that creation is the universe, is you. You are a love gift from Abba Father to the Son. And then when Jesus saved you, you were a love gift from the Son back to the Father. And then the Holy Spirit filled you. So you're a love gift from, and, and the Bible says the Father sent the Spirit. So you are now, you are then a gift from Father to Spirit. And now the Spirit is leading you back to Jesus. So you are a gift back to Jesus from the Spirit. Do you see how this works? Like, it's this constant revolving thing of, I love you, 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 I love you. And you are the gift being passed. <laughs> And it isn't that they don't love the gift. The gift is great. They celebrate the gift. They, oh, my daddy made this for me. It's important to him. But you are not as important to him as Jesus is. Or as, this, or as the spirit is. You are the gift. You are blessed and you are, you are precious. And, and he adores you. And because God, we're going to talk about the infinitude of God here in a minute. Okay. Because God is infinite. His love for you is infinite because everything about God is infinite. <laughs> and because you are a gift from father to son and back from son to father, the very love God has for his son is set on you because you are a gift from his son. Do you see how this all works? It's this beautiful, like, it is incredible. We have been interwoven into, invited into the dance between God, father, God, son, and God, spirit. Made a part of the family that is God, Father, God, Son, and God, Spirit. Wait, can I? Just a quick question. Yeah. I know, like, okay, you have God the Father, you have God the Son. I've heard different theories where they say the Holy Spirit is like the wife figure. No. Is that true? No. Okay. No. All right. The Holy Spirit is the love God has for Father. 
God Father has for God Son, and God Son has for God Father. That is, the Holy Spirit is the connection between the two of them. I, we're not going to go there because that would just be the end of the class. <laughs> if I start talking to you about how God Father, God Son, God Spirit really honestly interconnect with one another biblically, we'll all we'll all just be nose bleeding, laying in the ground, just going. <laughs> And we're already close. Okay, so we're just not, we're not going to go there. I promise you we will go there sometime. But Jonathan Edwards wrote an essay about the Trinity that if you spend time in it, like, brain cells will die. Okay, it's just going to happen. You're just going to be like, ah! and then, you know, be twitching on the ground for the rest of your life. Okay, so, but I want to bring your attention to one of the verses where we find out about the self-sufficiency of God, which is Psalm 50, verse 12. He says to us, look, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and all its fullness are mine. He's like, look, you don't fulfill a need that I have. And we need to understand that. When I was a kid, I was told God was lonely, and that's why he created people. Wrong! <laughs> <laughs> so I just mentioned you time telling back and going, wrong! I would love to do that. <laughs> Don't you tell me that! That's not the truth! <laughs> you sick, twisted individual putting this into the minds of children that the God that they serve has a need that they somehow fill. Like, that's disgusting. No, God has no needs. He has desires, he has wants, he does have those. But he has no needs. You don't fulfill a need he has. You are the recipient of the overflow of the endless river of love that pours out of the heart of God. Do not ever think that you are anything less than the most beloved one of God. But you are not God. And he does not need you. He adores you. But he doesn't need you. He is sufficient in himself. You don't provide for him something that he needs. Because if you did, he would have to serve you. He doesn't need your advice. He doesn't need your help. I hate it when preachers stand up and say, God needs you to do this. No, he doesn't. God doesn't need you. He desires you. He invites you in at his own cost. When God asks you to do something for him, he is settling for something far less than if he had done it himself. And the reason he's doing it is because he really likes you and he just wants to spend time with you. And you doing this with him is an amazing way for him to show you who he is and for you to learn to trust him more. And to feel excited about the fact that you're involved in what God is doing. It's not because God's up there going, who's going to win the world? I just don't know what to do. Don't get, no, 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 no. <laughs> At any moment, God could send the Archangel Michael down to just say, listen up world. Jesus is the savior. And if you don't come to him, you're going to hell. And the entire world would be like, ah! and get down on their faces and weep and cry and revival would take place. But God doesn't do that. <laughs>
Honestly, it's one of the deepest questions of my life as to why God doesn't do that. Like, if God just showed up no, in the sky, just ask if God, if God, uh, if God just showed up in the sky in all of His glory, or He would have to withhold much of His glory because if He showed up in all of His glory, He would kill everyone on the planet. But if He just showed up in some of His glory and said, "Hey guys, I'm God, and you need to listen to me, and my Son died for you, so become Christian." If He did that. It would all be over, right? It'd be done. But he doesn't do that. And there's really good reasons why. I just don't know what they are. But I trust his wisdom. There's a lot of times where we have to do that. We just have to go, I don't know why God does it this way. He just does. Honestly, the kind of crazy, the kind of really nuts idea that I have that might be God's reason for doing this is because he likes me. And he wants to do stuff with me. And that is, as, that is as important to him as my success. The possibility of my failure is totally worth it to him because it deepens my relationship with him in a way that nothing else can. Is that scary or what? It's like all of a sudden everything I do becomes really like... And everything he asks me to do becomes this blush-inducing invitation to intimacy with God. Like, you want me to do that with you? Yeah, I do. Come on, buddy. But I'm not, I'm not quite ready to believe that yet. I think it's the truth. But my own insecurity and, and the parts of me that still don't believe that God actually loves me that much won't let me really believe that yet. So I'm not quite there yet. I'm on my way, though. I honestly think that that's what the whole thing is about. Could it be that this whole thing is just about me loving Jesus more tomorrow than I did today? Okay. The self-sufficiency of God. Yep. Next one, the eternality of God. Okay, this, act, this means that God is outside of time. Okay, later on we're going to talk about God's omnipresence, that he exists everywhere. Well, his eternality is his omnipresence in the dimension of time. Okay, God is everywhere, but he's also every when. So God is right now in every moment of time. Because he exists outside of time. Which is why he's not worried. So is there the whole idea of predestination comes in as well? Yeah, that's part of it. Because he fully knows all of time from beginning to end. And he fully knows exactly how he's going to intervene in every moment. And so this is... But that doesn't mean we don't choose. No, no. Just... He fully knows the future. Yeah. He fully knows who's going to choose and who isn't. Yeah. And he knows how he's going to act upon them by the power of his spirit to help them choose, to enable them to choose. And he knows that there will be some that will not. He's not okay with that, but he knows it.
God is outside of time. He does not experience time like we do. The Psalms say that every day is a thousand years and every thousand years is a day. So in other words, God experiences time at whatever speed he chooses. He exists completely outside of it. It does not, it does not control him. You know how we have free motion within all three dimensions of space? Woo! I can move up, I can move across, I can move, you know, deep. I have I have full freedom of motion inside all dimensions, height, width, and depth. I have full free range of motion within all of those dimensions. Well, God, that's because I exist outside of those three dimensions. But I do not have free motion inside of the dimension of time, which is the fourth dimension. But God exists outside the fourth dimension. Therefore, he has free motion inside of all four dimensions. In fact, in the physics world, there are 11 dimensions, I believe, that they've been able to prove uh, mathematically that there are 11 dimensions of time-space. We only experience four of them. Like the other ones are just way beyond our understanding. Like apparently in the fifth dimension, you can actually unfold a basketball and turn it inside out without breaking it. I don't know how you do that, but it can be proved mathematically that you can do that. So if you exist, the higher the, you go in the dimensions, the more things are possible for you because you exist outside of all these other dimensions. God exists outside of all the dimensions. He is a dimension unto himself. Therefore, he has free range of motion in all the dimensions because he is eternal. Are you with me? Are you guys having fun with this? Yeah. Okay. So if he got time travel then? He doesn't have to time travel because he's already every when. I mean, I understand. So he is right now, he is with you five minutes ago. And he's with you five years ago. And he's with you a thousand, he's with whoever was there a thousand years ago. He is right now in every moment of time. Yeah, isn't that great? Okay, let's keep going. Because we have six minutes left. It'd be done 11, right? Yeah. No. Or 11.30. Then there is the infinitude of God. Which means that everything that is true about God is infinitely true about God. So whatever you can say about God has to be, you know, has to have an Infinite exponential, you know, whatever. It's, it's multiplied to infinity. Everything that is true about God is infinitely true about him. So God is good. He's infinitely good. He is love. He's infinitely love. He is strong. He is infinitely strong. Anything you can say about God is extended out to infinity. That's that's the reality of who he is. Everything about God is, is infinitely so. And that has to be true because there can only be one infinite thing. And everything else has to be finite. There can only be one reality that's infinite, and and that is God. So everything else has to be finite. Everything else has to have limits. But he has no limits. 
And so everything that is true, and not only that, everything about God is infinitely in perfect harmony with everything else about God. In fact, the, the reality of God should not be separated into all these other categories that we kind of think about him. Because they're all, it's really all just one reality that is the I am. Okay, so his goodness, his love, his kindness, his mercy, his, his generosity, his strength, his wrath, his, all of that is all a singular reality, which is God and that is infinite. Does that make sense? Yeah. That one takes a little bit to think about, but it is one of the most wonderful realities about him. Because that means if God is forgiving, that he is infinitely That's something that you can sit in for a while. God's grace is infinite. His love is infinite. And because that's true, we get to spend the rest of eternity exploring the infinitude that is God. We will never run out of God to explore because he's infinite. We can spend a trillion years hunting down one part of his nature and we will not get to the end of it. That's why he has to bring us out of time and may, and bring us to where he is because if we're really going to know him, remember that's his great desire that his people know him. If we're really going to know him, we need eternity to get to know him because that's how long it takes to get to know an infinite being. <laughs> All right. We have so many more. The immutability of God means he does not change. He is who he was. He was who he is. He does not change. Part of that is that he's outside of time, but God does not change. God is always the same. There is nothing about God that changes. God continues to move on forever. God is who he is exactly. Nothing about him changes. That continues. Yeah. How come like in the Old Testament he like changed his mind about something? I don't know if it was like in Moses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did he really? <laughs> Boom! <laughs> Did he really change his mind? Did he really change his mind? Or did the human situation on the earth change so that his so that his infinitude toward that thing seemed to change? Sacrificing Isaac? No. It was never God's intention for Isaac to be sacrificed. Ever. There's two places where it seems to say that God changed his mind. One is um, uh at the flood where it says, and God repented that he had ever made man on the earth. Well, that, that would seem to say that he was changed his mind about humankind. Like, well, I wanted humans, but now I don't. The reality is in any situation, if something changes, it is not God. It is, it is the thing that is interacting with God that changes. And the reality of human existence changed so much that now God was against the, where he was for human existence, we worked. We had gone so far that now God's infinitude was set against our 
existence. But it was us that changed, not God. Does that make sense? Okay, same thing in the situation with Moses. God says, I'm going to kill them all. Because who he was and his, and his infinitude was uh, destruction was going to come out from the holiness of God. And, and, and it's, like working with, it's like working with a force of nature. Okay? If you try and stand in a 50 mile an hour wind, like against the wind, you know, you're going to get blown over. But if you stand like aerodynamically so that the wind can move around you, then all of a sudden everything changes. Or if you have a wing which is built to harness that, that wind, you will fly. The wind has not changed. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's our relationship to the wind that has changed because of our posture. Okay. Moses went to God, appealed to God's nature. But my thing with that, did God really want to destroy the Israelites? I, no, I do not believe that he did. What I believe is that God was testing Moses just like he did with Abraham. It's the same thing. Because God puts us to this same test over and over again. Are you going to choose who I am or what I can do for you? Because what did God say that he was going to do for Moses? I'm going to kill all of them. I'm going to start over with you. And in that moment, Moses had a decision to make. His own exaltation or the exaltation of the reality of who God is. Just like how sometimes like God gives us those tests where he'll open doors and then he'll open another door and say, you need to choose. Yeah. You know. Except that I honestly believe that often God is just like, I want you to choose, Gracie. You can do whichever one. I'm going to be equally pleased with you. I want you to make a decision. But that's a whole nother discussion. <clears throat> but do you see how I, I don't believe God changed his mind in either one of those situations. I believe humankind I believe the human element is what changed, not not God. That's my opinion. I think I'm born out in scripture in this because God is unchangeable. He tells us that he does not change. Yes. Oh, I was just like moving okay. my hand. All right. <laughs> All right. We're out of time. Um, I suppose we can let's just let's just knock out a couple more. Okay. The, the, <laughs> because I'm having so much fun with this, I don't care. You guys get in trouble because you're late for prayer. It's not my bad. Um, <laughs> no, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> the omniscience of God means he knows everything there is nothing that is there is nothing that God does not know God knows everything perfectly that's a pretty fun one and there's the wisdom of God which means God understands everything perfectly and there's a difference between knowing everything and understanding everything are you with me on that? Yes. God has perfect wisdom. He, perfect, unchangeable, eternal, infinite wisdom. Okay. These are in a specific order because they build on one another. And God's wisdom is self-existent. It comes from his own. <clears throat> <laughs> then there's the transcendence of God. 
which means that he is beyond everything. Okay, this is the way I like to think of it. This is the way I heard somebody describe it to me, and I was like, ooh, that. Okay? Imagine the distance between a bacteria, bacterium, whatever, a single-celled organism, and Michael the Archangel. Okay? Imagine the distance between those two. All right? Think about that. Okay? The distance between Michael the Archangel and God is infinitely greater than the distance between a single-celled organism and Michael. That's transcendence. He is in a category of his own. He is not a creature. Okay? Every other living thing is a creature. Creature comes from the word created. Okay? We are all created. He is uncreated. And we are created. Nothing else is self-existent. Nothing else is self-sufficient. Nothing else is eternal. Nothing else is infinite. Nothing else is immutable. God, in all of those things, make God transcendent above every other thing. It also means that God is worth more than all of those other things combined. God's glory, God himself, is his worth is greater than the entire universe, including every person on the planet. He is not comparable to anything else. One of my favorite things I love to say in worship is, there is no one like you. And that is so, that is, the, that is that's the watery Kool-Aid again. That is like this puny little tiny thing compared to the truth of the transcendence of God. The word holy, when the cherubim, some of the greatest of all creation, fly around the throne of God, and they're just going, holy, holy. What they are saying is, nothing is like you. You are transcendent above all other things. There is no, I mean, nothing even compares to that comes even close. Ah! Their circuits are fried. I mean, can you imagine? Um, we understand our, our human capacities are so small. But uh, think of a, a, a being which was created to behold the beauty of God and fly around the throne of God covered with eyes so that, like, that's what they do. They exist to behold the beauty of God. And they're still, their circuits are fried 24-7 <clears throat> for all eternity. They're flying around the throne room of God just going, ah! that's all they do. In perfect pleasure forever. And that's where, but we have actually been invited to sit on the throne that they fly around. Yeah. <laughs> okay. The omnipresence of God means God's everywhere all the time. He's every when and he's everywhere. <laughs> No, it's not, but I, it, we have to invent words to talk about God. So every when makes sense, and everywhere makes sense. We know God is everywhere, and yet we still sing songs like, Come down! Oh, stop it. Come down? God's come down from where? I'm already there. I don't really know. I like, I like songs better where God's going, Come up. Come in. 
open up your eyes. Take your hands off your eyes so you can see me. Because I'm here. Because the distance that we feel between us and God is all generated by us. It's not generated by him. We have decided to be distant from him. So we have covered our eyes and we have covered our hearts. We've calloused our emotions so that we don't feel his glory. That's what we've done. We've hidden like Adam and Eve in the garden. We have hidden ourselves. Do you guys want to go? No. Okay. Sorry, I'm going to be the one to say it. No. If you want to stay, stay, but I'm not going to be held responsible. We're just going to go through the list. Okay. Then I'll be done. So he's omnipresent. Okay. The faithfulness of God. He always acts like himself and he never forgets or goes back on a promise. If God says he's going to do something, he will. Nothing can stop him. Not your sin, not your failure. Nothing can stop God from doing what he wants to do. He's faithful. He will never not act like himself. You need to take every thought that you have about God and run it through all of these things that I'm listing off. I'm only halfway through the list. The faithfulness of God. The rest of the list is really has to do with his character more than his essence. Kind of done with the essence part of God. Now we're going to talk a little bit more about his character. About his personality. God is faithful. He, he will always do what he said he's going to do. He always acts like himself. He never puts up a front, ever. He never pretends to be something that he's not. He never, ever gives up. Ever. He never throws you under the bus. He never uses anyone like usurps them, like uses them, like you used me. Again, the English language is weak. I want to be used by God. And then I'm mad because you used me. Well, I mean, wait, which one? Never mind. That's not how God is. He's faithful. Okay, the goodness of God. This one all by itself, I would love to spend about a year just teaching this. The goodness of God. There's no evil in him. None. Zero. He has, he has no darkness. He, there is no evil in him. There is, there's nothing about, there's no hidden agenda in him. God's not, he, there's, there's no like, now what's your angle on this, God? What are you really trying to do? No, that's not there. He is good. He is only good. That is all he has ever been. That's all he will ever be. And no matter what he is doing, he is being good doing it. Even the destruction that will come upon the earth in the last days 
is the goodness of God being manifested. It's going to take some mind-bendy thinking to understand that, but it's still true. You're going to have to do some Doctor Strange folding of the world to really get it. You know what I'm talking about? But, But it's true. He is always, always good. The justice of God. God is always just. That means all evil gets punished. It's the truth. All evil that has ever existed will be punished, either by Jesus on the cross or by hell. Jesus could absorb all evil into himself so that no person ever had to go to hell. That is possible, but it would take their faith and their choice to step into union with Christ for that to take place. People are choosing hell over the cross over and over and over and over and over again. And more people will choose hell than will choose the cross. And that is what they're choosing. No, I'll pay my own way. God will let you. He doesn't want to. It's not how he wants it to go. But he will allow it. Because he's just and sin must be punished. You might say, why does sin have to be punished? Because sin is the opposite of the goodness of God. It's the opposite of the reality of God. And anything that is opposite of the reality of God cannot continue to exist in a God-saturated universe. So God created a place that was separated from him. Where those who wanted to be separated from him could go. The first ones, the ones he created it for, were Satan and his angels, who chose to be separated from God, even though they had seen him themselves with their eyes. That's why there is no, I believe that that is why there's no redemption for Satan and his angels, because they have seen him in his eternality. And all the things that we have mentioned, they have known him, and they still chose to be separated from him. And that's it. Plus, they also exist outside of time. Not quite the way that God does, but they do. Where were we? The justice of God. All of the injustice that has taken place on the earth will be answered by the justice of God at the end of the day. All of it. None of it will be left to stand. There's not anyone that after this whole drama is over will be able to say God was not just. In fact, that's one of the primary things that we hear said about God all through the book of Revelation. Your ways are just and true. They just keep saying that about him. 
No, this was earned. This was deserved. And after the great white throne of judgment, they will say that about him. Even those that are burning in Gehenna will be saying about God, I, this, this is what I deserve. This is what I, he was just. He is true. Because they will have looked him in the eye. They will have looked their own sin in the eye. And they, and they will have seen, you know what? You had this option that you rejected. And now you're getting what you chose. And they will, they will acknowledge the truth. He's just. In Britain, they have a phrase that means this is, this is the right. This is justice. It's, they say, it's a fair cop. And that's what people will say on the day. At least the British people anyway. <laughs> we need to learn to see the justice of God as beautiful as it is. It scares us a little bit to think of God the judge, to think of God the just one, because we know we deserve hell. We understand that about ourselves. And it scares us to see God as this righteous judge that will punish sin. It's like, whew, I mean, it's, it's frightening. It's difficult. But we have to get, plus there's that whole thing in us that wants to exalt the worth of man higher than the worth of God. And so we kind of have that how dare you kind of thing in us whenever we think about the justice of God. Like, who are you? To, well, he's the only one. He is the one that can honestly say, I am fit to judge you because he knows all the facts, even the ones that we don't know, even the ones we can't know. And he sees it completely impartially. He's just. The mercy of God. Here's the beautiful thing. The Bible says mercy triumphs over judgment. He delights in mercy. He delights in mercy. He loves mercy. I think part of that whole test with Moses was God kind of looking to see, do you really know me? Do you know that I delight in mercy? Will you ask me for mercy? He loves mercy. When you are thick in guilt and shame about your sin, you need to remember this. He loves mercy. He delights in showing mercy. And when we repent, that is the difference between those that will be subject to hell and those that will not, is this one reality called repentance. And when we repent, which is, I'm sorry. When we do that, mercy comes barreling out of the heart of God, just pouring toward us because he delights in mercy. He loves to forgive you. And he's not rolling his eyes going, again? That's not happening. Isn't that how you feel when you ask God to forgive you again for the same thing that you've asked him a million times? Don't you feel like he's up there rolling his eyes going, <sighs> my mom had this awesome thing that she, she would always, 
She would, it didn't matter what we were asking her for. She always responded the same way. I suppose every time I could have been like, mom, can I give you a million dollars? She would have been like, I suppose that was just her natural thing. I don't know. I don't know. God does not do that when we ask him for forgiveness ever. God's answer is yes. I love forgiving you. We so don't feel that way, do we? We so feel like, <coughs> we so feel like, please forgive me. Like God's like, all right, I'll forgive you this time. You better keep your nose clean, boy. That is not God. God's just like, oh yeah, I'll forgive you. And he picks us up and gives us a big hug and kisses us. It's like, I love you so much. That's his response to true repentance. His response to true repentance is joy. Because he gets to pour out mercy. He delights in mercy. We don't use the word delight enough in our culture. We just don't. And so it's kind of become this old, like, we, you know, when's the last time you, like, ate something or did something and it said, that was delightful? You don't, because it sounds cheesy. Okay? But it's this beautiful word. It's this beautiful word. We all, and we all... We, we are all searching for delight, are we not? Aren't we searching for delight? Don't you, isn't that what you're kind of after? Delight? Aren't you, aren't you kind of longing to actually, like, be delighted? I am. I'm constantly looking for, like, I want to be delighted by something. God is delighted in showing mercy. That is just one of the mind-blowing realities of him, and I love it. The grace of God. Please understand, mercy and grace are two separate things. Does anybody know what the difference is? Go. Um, Mercy is not giving you something you do deserve. Yes. So grace is giving you something that you don't deserve. Exactly. That's correct. Okay? Mercy is, you were speeding, but I'm not going to give you a ticket. Okay? That's mercy. Mercy is, you've earned punishment, but I'm not going to give it to you. Okay? Grace is, not only am I not going to give you a ticket, but here's $100. That's grace. So mercy means we have sinned and God's not going to punish us. Because he punished his son for in our place. Astounding. That's mercy. Okay? But not only that, beyond that, above and beyond that, far like out of the reach of, is grace, which is on top of not sending you to hell, I'm also going to give you myself forever. That's grace. And God is gracious. He loves to give to those who do not deserve, and he loves to give you things you cannot earn. Why? The base answer, the answer that will always work in this class, no matter what, when I ask the question why, is very simple. It is the glory of God. You can answer that anytime I say why, because that's, that is that is the answer that's always true if I'm asking the question why. Okay? 
Now, I might have to go back and tell you how we get to the glory of God from this why, whatever. But this is why God is gracious. Because glory goes to the giver, not the receiver. The receiver gets the joy, but the giver gets the glory. Okay, so if I bought a car and gave it to you free of charge, you get to use that car, but I get the credit for giving it to you, right? Okay, and you can never, when, whenever anybody says, I really like your car, you kind of, you can't be like super proud about that. Why? Because you didn't pay for it. You didn't earn the money to pay for that car, did you? No, it was a gift. It was given to you. And so forever, the gifts humble us. I will never forget. Rachel and I were in this place where we were, since we were early married, we made like no money, like zero money. And at Christmas, all of our family gave us these huge boxes of food. And I cried the whole time because one we desperately needed it, like, because we barely had enough food. But two, I was deeply humbled by this gift. Almost ashamed of the fact that I really needed this. So their gift blessed me immensely, but it also brought me low, like, humbled me. They got the glory. I got to eat the food. <laughs> so I got the joy. But I can't be proud of that. That's why it says it is by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Why? What's the last part? So no man can boast because your salvation was not earned by you. You can't parade it around and say, I'm so much better than all y'all because I won this. No, you can't do that. You didn't earn it and you can't earn it. The only one that can be glorified by your salvation is God. He wants you to be happy and he wants his sufficiency to be glorified. So he just keeps giving, 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 giving all the time. He's incredibly generous so that we have to stand back and say, wow, God, you have so, you're just giving me so much and I earned none of it. And God's going, enjoy it, please. I love you so much. Enjoy it. And we're standing there going, God is amazing. You see how this works? God's highest goal for all for every single one of our lives, is his glory and our joy. And everything that he's going to do in your life is going to be for those two things at the same time. His glory, your joy. John Piper says it like this, because God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. That is really good news. God's highest goal for your life is deep, unflinching delight and satisfaction in your heart over him. <laughs> That's so cool. Now we get to this, the love of God. He is wildly passionate about you to all of his extremes. Remember, God is infinite, which means his love for you is infinite. 
There is no end to the affection he has for you. I love that song. And you can sing it confidently because it's true. He is an endless ocean, a bottomless sea, and the entirety of that ocean is on fire with love for you personally. Everybody raise your hands like this. We're all going to make a statement together. Are you ready? Repeat after me. I am God's favorite. favorite. Oh, no, say it like you believe it. I'm God's favorite. I am God's favorite. Woo, it's true. Amen. Whenever you're feeling like really crappy about yourself, I just want you to stop in that moment, raise your hands and say, I'm God's favorite. Sometimes saying things that we don't believe can help us believe them. Okay, the love of God. We don't have time to really, I mean, oh my Lord. Bible says God is love. We'll spend a lot of time talking about that. We've already spent a lot of time talking about it. Two more. The holiness of God. He is perfectly holy and utterly without sin. He is perfect. There's nothing broken or missing from God. He's complete. He is perfect. He is wholly transcendent. He is perfectly healthy. And no one is like him. We kind of focus on the one aspect of his holiness, which is his complete sinlessness. And we should, because that's one of the things that makes him like nothing else. Everything else in creation is tainted with sin. The angels are holy and they have not sinned. The ones that serve God are holy and they have not sinned. But they aren't holy the way he is holy. He's perfectly without sin, complete and whole. There's nothing missing from God. He's holy. There is no brokenness in him. Okay. And the last one. This is an offensive one. The sovereignty of God. This one fights against everything inside of us on a regular basis. God makes every decision about everything. Now, I already hear it in your head. But what about the stuff that God allows but does not cause? There's still a yes. Nothing happens that God did not at least say okay to. And is there a difference? When we're talking about an omnipotent being, all-powerful, which we haven't got to that yet. I forgot that one. I must have missed it. God is all-powerful. He can do everything. There's nothing God cannot do. But it fits with his sovereignty. God is the absolute king over everything that happens and nothing happens that he has not in some small way allowed. The real wrestle that we get into is when we get all the way down to the nittiest of grittiest is allowing the same as causing.
If God has the power to stop something and he doesn't, is he culpable? Because God has never done anything evil. He's never done anything wrong. He's never caused evil. He's never caused wrong. At the same time, God has not stopped evil, nor has he stopped wrong. But he could have. So the question is, does that make God evil? That's the question. And that's the wrestle. That's why I said this is an offensive one. And put into this idea, Romans 8.28, God works all things together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. Even the most evil sin that has ever been created, God is using it to do good to those who have repented, who have repented and have been called according to his purpose. This is one of those things where we stand before the complexity of the world and the simplicity of God and we say, I don't get it. At the end of the day, we have to just stand there and say, God is completely sovereign and God is completely good at the same time. And whether I understand it or not, it's still true. Because God is transcendent. He's beyond human understanding. And at the end of the day, we have to stand and say, if, if I had the same perspective as God, I would agree with the decision that he made. And I do not have that perspective now. I have, I'm forced to trust that he is good. I have no choice. Or you cannot trust that he is good and walk away from him. You can make that decision. It's available to you. Father, I thank you for your, your invisible attributes, your eternal power, and your divine nature. These ideas that I've been talking about today are so much bigger than puny human minds can even come close to understand. It's like trying to empty the ocean with a seashell. Lord, I pray with all my heart that the truth will awaken us to your beauty, and to your glory, and that the enemy will not be able to twist any of these ideas into accusation against you, but that we will stand with what your word says about you, that you are infinitely loving, that you are infinitely good, that you are infinitely gracious, that you are holy, that there is no darkness in you at all. And this idea of your sovereignty 
Christians have thrown it away, Lord, over and over again because it's too much. The idea of your omniscience, Christians have thrown it away. Lord, Christians have taken one or other of these ideas and removed it because they can't understand it and because it messes with their emotions. Father, I pray that we would dare to see you as you are and not as we want you to be. And then we would worship the mystery that is the I am. And not the puny little idol that we build with our ridiculous human minds. I ask this in Jesus' name.